Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Aaron Batty here, your host on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. 106. 106 is how many people listened to the last episode to this point on accountability. It was kind of going low profile for a while, but I checked yesterday and it just took off. Plus, we had our first international listener from Nigeria uh, tagged onto the podcast. He reached out to the website and I directed him to the sermon on it or the, the episode on accountability. So this is really cool. Keep sharing the podcast. Keep telling people about it. Oh yeah. Let's get into today's episode. Here we go. This episode is brought to you, as always, by 5-Minute Bible Study. Go to 5MinuteBibleStudy.com and check out our long list of resources. Today's feature resource is go to the website homepage, 5MinuteBibleStudy.com. The drop-down menu at the top on your phone or on the laptop will take you to the first thing, 5-Minute Bible Series, which I featured on a previous episode. But I want to specifically focus on Are You Saved? The Are You Saved series. So this is originally designed for people that want to lead a Bible study with somebody uh, about salvation, about how to be saved. And so if you are somebody trying to kind of hone your knowledge and how to go about that, this is for you. There's 29 episodes. But also, if you are somebody that wants to make sure that you are saved, I give a video presentation of each and every single episode, so I'm really talking to you. So you can learn and verify, are you saved according to the Bible? But again, if you want to teach this, this is for you how to lead a Bible study. Take it. I give study notes for everything. Uh, It's a great series. Check it out. Now, getting into the episode itself, let's preview what we're going to be dishing out today. I'm really in a good mood today. Yesterday, I, I shared on Facebook, was probably the best day of the year. I don't know why. It was like I was on a euphoric drug or something. I I was not. I had three cups of coffee, which is one more than usual, but that's kind of bled into today. I'm feeling great. Let's get into what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to be giving a Bible story, as always, Jonah and the Whale. And in this one, I'm going to kind of do a more of a dramatic reading of Jonah 1, which contains most of the main facts. I'll add a thing or two and uh, dramatize it. It should be fun. And then for the main dish, this is what we're really focusing on in this episode, is how to choose a Bible translation. We're starting a new year. Hopefully, you've got some Bible reading goals, but you need to step back and ask yourself as I get to the Bible reading portion of my new year goals, what translation should I be reading from? If you've been asking that question, we're going to hit you where you want right here. Uh, Last one, foot and mouth syndrome. I'm going to tell you where I put my foot in my mouth in a sermon I gave last year where I said something about Ancestry.org and how it shows people's age. People didn't respond to it very well. (laughs) That's what we got up on the docket today. And with no further ado, Bible stories. And that donkey got up not too far away from that angel of the Lord. Send me a man to fight with me. Let me tell you a story that will prove to you that I can defeat that giant. And he said, no, I can't do that. You're my master's wife. Jonah and the Whale. If you'd like to read along or you just like to read this on your own time, go to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Here it goes. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, God said, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found his ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So basically all that comes down to is God sent Jonah on a mission. He didn't want to do it. And probably the reason why I think Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because Nineveh, the Assyrians, were the arch enemy of Israel. And why in the world would Jonah want to go and preach to the enemy who is a threat to them nationally? And so he does not go. He just runs from God. You'd never run from God. Silly Jonah. So dumb of him. Well, it doesn't get any better from here. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was a 
tossed about and broken up, it says. Then the mariners, mariners are like uh, sailors. The sailors, they were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. They weren't crying out to the God. They had their own gods, not real gods. And this is why when they cried out to their gods, they didn't get an answer. They threw all the cargo from the ship into the sea to lighten the load, but that didn't help. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, the Bible says, and he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? That's what the Bible says. It calls him a sleeper. Arise, call on your God, Jonah. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know who's caused this trouble has come upon us. And I can't really explain casting lots in a way that kids could really grasp, I don't think. But for you adults listening, it was basically like a casting of stones or some instrument uh, and kind of an act of divination perhaps in idolatry circles, but it was used not as an act of divination to know the revelation of God. And so they do this, they cast these stones or whatever it was, and the lot fell on Jonah, which means that Jonah was the reason for all this going on. And so they asked Jonah, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? They don't really know anything about him. What's your country and what people are you? And so he said, I'm a Hebrew. He, he means I'm an Israelite. I'm of the nation of Israel, and I fear the Lord, which is kind of a funny statement because if you fear the Lord, you obey the Lord. Uh, but and, and he did fear the Lord, but he was not obeying the Lord, the God of heaven, he says, who made the sea and the dry land. So already Jonah's preaching. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this to us? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest, it's because of me. Well, the men had grown a liking for Jonah for whatever reason, and they didn't want to. So they rode harder and harder to return to land, but they just couldn't. And when all hope was lost, they finally cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man Jonah's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as you please. The funny thing is, these guys who were calling out to their gods initially, we've already got Jonah preaching to them as he's fleeing from God, and they're already being saved or converted. And so at that point, they pick up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased. The raging was gone immediately, just like that. And the men feared the Lord, the Bible says, exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So already, the gospel's being preached. Then, dun-dun-dun, Jonah's out there in the sea. Ooh, you can imagine what he's uh, scary. I mean, this you can really put yourself in Jonah's shoes how scary this would have been. And then out of nowhere, this large fish. We don't really know what kind of fish it was. People say it was a whale, but we really don't know if it was a whale. Um, this large fish swallows Jonah, and he just goes into the belly of the fish. Now, I imagine, you know, in the veggie tales, they have this vegetable that's swallowed in a fish, and he's supposed to be Jonah, and it's like his huge cave, you know? But I was thinking about this the other day, and I figured Jonah probably wasn't in a large cavernous hole or, or cave, this fish's belly. He was probably like he was in a straitjacket and had nowhere to move. His face was up against the slimy, nasty lining of the st stomach of this fish, and uh, he could probably barely breathe. He was in there for three days, and the Bible says he was praying, man. He was praying. To get out of that belly. He, said, he understood. He feared the Lord. He got the message. I hear you, Lord. I hear you. Please let me out of here. And so I really don't think that this was a comfortable situation for more than the fact that it was dark and it was lonely and all that. I think he had, he couldn't even hardly move. So think about that for just a minute. Now, after that, the Lord spoke to the fish, the Bible says, and vomited. Jonah on a dry land. And he lands on this beach. He lands on... Panama City Beach, Florida, and there's all these people you can imagine sunbathing and whatnot, 
Not really, probably. But anyway, you get the idea. These people are like, did you just see that? And so, I mean, they're like squinting, you know, they're rubbing their eyes and they're looking again. And Jonah's just covered in fish saliva and puke and whatever else was in the belly of that fish. Gross. (laughs) Oh, nasty. It just makes me cringe thinking about it. But as these people, they're from Nineveh, you can imagine, or maybe they're going to Nineveh. Maybe they're merchants or something. And they start on their way to the city to tell the news. They're dropping by the New York Times and telling the reporters reporters there. They're stopping by CNN, uh, uh, CNN, uh, whatever, Central Nineveh News Network. And anyways, by the time that Jonah starts walking, and the Bible says it was a three days walk to Nineveh, he got the message he's going to Nineveh to preach. By the time he got there, you think people hadn't heard that this Jonah person was vomited up by a fish onto the shore. They knew about it. They knew what would happen. They knew who was coming. And because of that, his sermon was one of the shortest sermons ever. Such a short sermon. But the people were upset. Now, have you ever heard anybody get upset by a short sermon? Well, they got upset by this short sermon, but not upset in a bad way. It says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown because of, and it's implied, because of the sin of this city. And it says there, So the people of Nineveh believed God, just like the sailors, remember? They proclaimed a fast. They didn't eat. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And so they repented. Jonah did his job finally, and the whole city turned to God. I mean, this is incredible. Thousands of people turned to God. It says at the last verse of the book, and um, there were 120,000 persons who could not discern between their right hand and their left, meaning those are innocent babies or children who did not have a conscience yet. They did; they were not accountable. They couldn't tell from their right and their left. There were thousands of people saved that day in this great story of the prophet Jonah being swallowed by the fish. This episode is also brought to you by ChurchMomsForChristianSingles.com. Are you older than 12 years old and still unmarried? You need a church mom to help you out then. At ChurchMomsForChristianSingles.com, we have a whole staff of church moms to get you where you need to be. They'll ask you every single day, why are you still single? To remind you there's something wrong with you. This will inspire and motivate you to cure this terrible disease of singleness that plagues you. We also give great motherly advice like, you gotta get them young so you can train them the way you want. Aunt Patricia will send you a reminder every Sunday that she has someone she wants you to meet. If you're approaching 30, this is a must-have resource for you. Visit churchmomsforchristiansingles.com to create your account and start getting church mom's advice today. Alrighty then, it's time to talk about how to choose a Bible translation. I hope that you find this episode helpful. I think there's a lot... I know there's a lot to talk about here. In fact, there's so much to talk about that I might have to do another episode in the future. So if you really found this to be helpful and you would like to know more about the differences between literal or essentially literal translations and less literal translations, I'll put it like that to begin with, then tell me at the end of this episode, reach out to me on 5-Minute Bible Study and tell me I'd like to hear more about Bible translations as just a subject in general. Where do we start? I have so many resources in front of me right now, it's kind of overwhelming. And we're just going to go till about the 30-minute mark probably and cut off. But I'd like to make this practical to begin with. I'd like to say something from the very first. I'll repeat it throughout. I want you to take this point with you if you don't understand or appreciate anything else. Whenever you choose a Bible translation for Bible reading, okay, you can choose, I mean... I wouldn't go so far as to say choose any Bible translation you want. I mean, you can do what you want, but I would not recommend choosing just any translation. For example, I would never recommend somebody to do their daily Bible reading out of the message. That's not the Bible. That's a commentary. If you want to read a commentary, read the message. That's how I would put it. So, that you know, translation is used kind of loosely here when you're talking about including translations like the message, but any translation of the Bible that is 
essentially literal, we'll talk about what that means in just a minute, or dynamically equivalent, we'll talk about what that means, aka the New International Version, is a less literal translation. If you wanted to read either one of those types of translations, just choose one to read out of that is easiest for you to read. Read a translation, I repeat, that's easiest for you to read and to comprehend. But with that said, when you sit down to study, if you are a teacher, a preacher, or you're just sitting down to do your Bible study, to get in the Word, to get gritty and dirty, um, that's when you need to whip out several translations. You need to whip out at least, I would say, three, and go north of there as many as you have time and care to. And out of those, I'll tell you what is an essentially literal translation. You need to have at least two of those. Two out of the three need to be an essentially literal translation um, in your Bible study. So if you'll do that, I really don't think that you can go wrong. Um, you, you will find, if you read a looser translation, like, for example, uh, the New Living Translation, which I cannot stand. <laughs> I'm telling you my cards right here. Uh, if you read that as your daily Bible... You're actually going to take a lot of lingo and concepts and ideas, and that will bleed into your thought that you're probably not going to cross-check for some time. And eventually, it'll come up in a conversation, and you'll realize, hmm, maybe I need to go re-verify that. And I would say, overall, you're going to find yourself wishing that you had read something a little more literal than the um, New Living Translation. But overall, as a general rule, read from a translation you can understand, study from at least three or more translations, two of those being literal. So with that being said, let's talk about translation just as a background and all. If you're not familiar, the English Bible was translated into English for the first time in the 1400s, but it was really translated from the original Greek in the 1500s. It was around the 1540s, You can, I think it was actually 1550s, that um, William Tyndale is the father of the English Bible, translating it from the original Greek. So for a long time, there was a dark age in the history of religion, and nobody, no layperson had a Bible. And the only Bible that there was in common circulation among the you know, clergy and so forth were the Latin Vulgate, which was translated by Jerome in the 300s, I believe it was, and Latin was not the original um, language of the Scriptures, Greek was, at least in the New Testament. And so John Wycliffe comes along in the 1400s, and he translates into English from the Latin Vulgate, but again, he's translating a translation. So then uh, Erasmus, Luther, Martin Luther, um, Desiderius Erasmus, William Tyndale come along, and they start, Erasmus developed a Greek text for translation, and then Luther took that and translated it into the common German tongue, Tyndale translated it into the common English tongue, and from there, uh, that was the root of what became the King James translation in 1611, was that Tyndale New Testament. And so William Tyndale, he offered so much. I mean, if you are reading an English Bible right now, uh, thank God for William Tyndale that he took the time, and, and he was killed for translating the Bible, essentially, and the things that he taught as a result of studying the Bible and its original languages that contradicted what he witnessed in the Catholic Church of his day. So thank God for William Tyndale. He has offered us so much in terms of our Bibles today. Now that's enough for history. If you're into history, uh, I would recommend that if you want to know more about this, go read The Man That Gave God an English Voice by David Teams. And that's a book that my dad uh, was recommended by somebody else, so whoever it was, on the life and work of William Tyndale. That's a really good book if you like history and you want to know more about... He's just a really interesting character, but you want to know more about how the kind of the King James developed uh, and, and what went, goes into translation. What were those guys taking into consideration, you know, of how they would... what words they would use, what phrases, and, and they came across roadblocks. What are we going to do in this passage? There's so many things that go into translation. Now, from there, that's enough about history. I did write in my How to Study the Bible or How to Understand the Bible workbook. And there's also, that's available online if you just wanted to read it online. There's Lesson 5 in that book is How to Choose a Bible Translation. I'll just tell you a little bit about what goes into the difficulties of translating the Bible. 
into any tongue, really, if it's German, if it's is it Chukizi, I think that's a, a language, Chichewa, whatever the language is, there's four different elements, and I got this from the Origins of the Bible, edited by Philip Comfort. Um, I can't remember which author in that editor's work said this, but there's four things that go into translating a, a translation. <laughs> uh, number one is accuracy. So the, the translator has some level of accuracy he's trying to shoot for. Now, not all translations are trying to make that number one on their list of priorities. Accuracy is not the number one priority, for example, for the NIV. That's not to say that the NIV is altogether bad. I'm just saying that's not the priority there. Translations like the ESV and the New American Standard Bible and <clears throat> the King James and New King James, those accuracy takes a much higher priority, okay? But with accuracy, see, I'll just give you an example. If you wanted a completely accurate Bible, as accurate as you could get, in today's English, what you would want to get is called a Greek interlinear, a Greek interlinear Bible. But see, if you were reading a Bible that was accurate, basically you take the Greek text and you just spell out the English word or phrase that represents that word right below it, it would be so choppy that you would not be able to really read it. You, you definitely could not just sit down and read Romans 3 in a flow. You'd have so much difficulty. Here's an example I'm reading from the Greek interlinear on blueletterbible.org here for Romans 3 and verse 25. Okay, now, now try to imagine that you have never read this verse before, Romans 3, 25, and listen to it. Okay, this is what it would be in the Greek interlinear. Whom has set forth God a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare righteousness, his, for the remission that are passed of sins through the forbearance of God. So you, you could probably sit there and look at that for a little while and make sense of it, especially since you, you've read and are familiar with what is uh, the translation of the New King James or others. But let's read another one, okay? Verse 26, "...to declare righteousness his at this time that he might be of him just and the justifier in which believeth Jesus." <laughs> you see, it's very difficult to take that. Now that's prioritizing accuracy right there. But to take that and make it readable for the average reader, or even not just an above-average reader, uh, you can't read that fluidly. So that's one thing that's taken into consideration. So you want to be accurate, but you also want to make the translation readable. And so there is another thing called appropriateness. So first accuracy, then translators consider appropriateness. And I believe what they mean by that is um, you have to choose You know, between sometimes one Greek word is best represented by three English words, or vice versa. And so you have to decide as a translator which of these is most appropriate to represent the concept or the statement that Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. Okay, so that's appropriateness, and, and that's kind of closely tied to accurateness, and it's also closely tied to the next criteria, which is naturalness. And with naturalness, we're looking at, okay, so you've got an accurate translation. Now let's take that accurate translation and make it readable. Let's make it to where it reads naturally. And so, when you now pick up your, your New King James Version, for example, and let me turn over to uh, Romans 3 and verse 25, it says there in the New King James, "...whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed." Now, see, that reads. That's natural. The phrases make appropriate the Greek text, but they also try to, as much as possible, prioritize accuracy. And then there is finally a fourth criteria, which is form. Let's try to keep the form of the original text. And this is most apparent, you can imagine, in poetry. So, for example, the book of Psalms. You look there, and there's obvious structure, there's obvious form to the, the flow of the text, so, so that parallelism is comes out, and you, and you can see it. Even our editors indent the text and block it so you, that you can tell that this is poetry. Not only that, but they try to, to maintain that form in the actual words that they use so that when you read it, you get the rhythm of the poetry. And a lot of newer modern translations that uh, try to go and they try to prioritize naturalness above everything else and readability and comprehension above everything else, they will often uh, destroy the poetry of the Bible. And yeah, I mean, maybe to some degree they got the, the the word across, but 
you cannot appreciate the beauty of the text anymore. If you don't appreciate literature, if you don't appreciate poetry, then that's not going to make a lot of sense to you. But hopefully, accuracy, appropriateness, naturalness, and form, those four concepts, if you understand those, you'll understand why there are so many different Bible translations. Because different Bible translation committees are prioritizing one of those elements or criteria over the rest. And that's why there's a continuum of literal to less literal translations. With that being said, I said I would explain what I meant by essentially literal translations. Let's do that now. And as I do, I would recommend that you choose uh, that you buy. It's a pamphlet. It's not really a book. It's really a small pamphlet that's only... It's less than 30 pages. It starts on page 5. Yeah, so it's less than 30 pages, and it's called Choosing a Bible by Leland Riken. I've read quite a bit by Leland Riken. He is a biblical scholar on biblical literature, The Bible, reading the Bible as literature. I've been reading one of his books this year, and I don't like all of his stuff, but when he talks about Bible translation, he's really good. And there's a larger work that this small pamphlet's adapted from called The Word of God in English, which I've heard is a great book for many years, and I need to read it really next year. But this book helps the layperson, helps you understand what do I need to consider when I'm looking at on the Bible bookstore shelf, an NIV, a Christian Standard Bible, a New Living Translation, a New American Standard Bible. How do I know which one of these to get? And then, and then you hear preachers say, well, you know, you need to get the NIV. Or you have another preacher say, uh, no, you need to stick with the King James Version. How do I know which one of those to go with? So this little book, it's condensed down for hopefully average readers to understand it. He uses some big words, but he also explains most of those big words like this. There's two, there's actually really three translation strategies that you need to be familiar with. And so that when you hear these in the future, you're now, oh, okay, I know what they're talking about. Now, Riken only points out two because since then there's been a third translation theory that has developed and it has influenced, it's the, it's the foundation of the Christian Standard Bible. And I'll introduce that last. But if you've ever heard the phrase formal equivalent, and dynamic equivalent, those are translation theories. Uh, theory is not the, really the word I'm looking for. Philosophies, that's the word I'm looking for. Those are translation philosophies. Formal equivalent and dynamic equivalent. You may be like, Aaron, stop using big words. Well, you have to understand these because, for example, you're not going to understand Riken's book, which is made pretty simple, but you need to know what this means. A formal equivalent translation, I think of it like this. It's frequently called a word-for-word translation. Now, that's a little bit too simplified of what it is, but it's the idea that it's shooting for more of a word-for-word translation result than a thought-for-thought translation result. So it prioritizes accuracy more than dynamic equivalent, which prioritizes readability and comprehension. So dynamic equivalent is often called a thought-for-thought translation as opposed to a word-for-word translation. In fact, I'll read from Riken. He says here, Dynamic equivalent translators believe that the translator has the duty to make interpretive decisions for the ignorant reader. Now, when he puts it like that, it's <laughs> you understand why that's kind of insulting. For one, it's leaving the impression that you can't think for yourself. You're just a dumb, ignorant person. And to some degree, we are. You know, A lot of us don't know Greek. I'm learning Greek right now, but the little bit I do know, I really don't know anything. And I, I definitely, you know, I can make some educated decisions about what translations to read by knowing some basic principles, like I'm sharing with you. But really, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant overall. But I'm not so ignorant that I can't see through the philosophy they're using to translate and distinguish between two translations, which one would be better for my reading and Bible study. When you read this uh, book by Riken, it's just so great. I just read it yesterday. It's been on my shelf for a long time. I was like, wow, man, he makes a great case for essentially literate translations. Now that phrase, essentially literal, sorry, not literate, literal. Essentially literal translations are formal equivalent translations, the ones that strive to be word for word. And the reason he expressly uses the phrase essentially literate, literal because there's not an English translation that you're going to find that is an actually completely literal translation. Again, if you wanted that, you'd have to go to the Greek interlinear, 
which is not really a readable translation for your just Bible reading. So he says essentially literal, and that's, I think, a great phrase to use to describe this. So again, translations that would fall into that category, if you are unfamiliar, go to the website 5minutebiblestudy.com, and if you look on that, just search in the search bar, how to choose a Bible translation. On that lesson five, go to the bottom of the article, and there's a little continuum graph I've given you figure, and it gives you a, a continuum. On the far left hand is word-for-word translations from most literal to least literal. And then on as you go to the right on this graph, there are thought-for-thought translations. And the further right you go, the more free the translation becomes. So that you have your Greek and your linear on the far left, the most literal, and you have the message, the most liberal and free of all. It's not a translation. It's on the farthest right. That gives you a good visual to see where does this translation that I have in my hand fall in terms of essentially literal or dynamic equivalent. If you can't remember in your head, you know, it took me a long time to get those two phrases down, formal and dynamic equivalent, and remember which one was the word for word, and I would go back and forth. So I finally remembered it like this, formal, think of going to a formal. That means you, it's very well put together, everything's in the right place, you got to dress nice. I think of that when I think of literal or essentially literal translations. Everything is trying to be as well put together as possible, as neat as possible, word for word. You think of dynamic, we're going for a wow factor. That's This isn't just a word association, I go or an image association in my head. Dynamic, I'm trying to get a wow factor, not necessarily looking for the literalness of the text, but just the dynamic aspect of the text. Let's get that concept forth to people. That's kind of the idea of the the formal, the uh, dynamic equivalent philosophy. And so if that helps you to memorize or to learn the two different philosophies, then great. Now, I did say that there's a third philosophy that Riken doesn't mention in his book, and it is called optimal equivalence. And this is only true to the Christian Standard Bible that I'm aware of. The Christian Standard Bible... I can't even remember now. I think it was 2016. Yeah, it says here, I'm on the csbible.com website, the Christian Standard website. It says 2016 was when this translation was produced. So one of the newest translations out there, and if you've been hearing the CSB, look it up. I've watched several YouTube videos of it months ago, and I did a bunch of research because a friend asked me about this translation, and it has become more and more popular. And uh, here's straight from the CSB website on translation philosophy, Optimal equivalence. says the Christian Standard Bible employs a translation philosophy known as optimal equivalence, which seems to achieve an optimal balance of linguistic precision reflecting the original language with readability in contemporary English. So if you didn't understand what that was saying, basically it's trying to be a balance of both worlds. It's trying to to prioritize accuracy, but also to prioritize readability. And to some extent, I mean, like, for example, the the NIV does that. To some extent, that's not f- really a whole lot different. It's, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between the NIV and that explanation. But more or less, this is, a, from what I can tell, a pretty good hybrid between the King James Version and the New International Version. Um, it's going to be a little more literal than the NIV, but it's going to be a little more readable than the King James or the New King James. And so I have recommended to one mother that she was asking for a Bible translation that her kids could read. And I I read several passages and done a lot of research on the CSB, and I said, here, like I always say, read from one you can understand, study from multiple, uh, with hopefully emphasis on essentially literal when you study. So she got those for her son, and I just called her yesterday and said, hey, how are they liking that? Are they able to understand it? And she said in their their homework, their, their homeschoolers, they seem to be able to understand it a lot better. And she, so, you know, and she understood, you know, my recommendation when, when they study the Bible, they're going to get more than just the CSB. So I'm actually got one of those coming my way in the mail, and I read through the Bible every year. This year I'm reading through the NIV 2011 uh, next year, I'm going to read through the CSB. Now, and I'll and at that point, I'll be able to really give my true 
thoughts on the translation as a whole at you know at the end of 2022. One sister, another one, and I am going to call her out, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but Beth Schaefer, you're listening to the podcast probably. Beth Schaefer always gives great recommendations, great advice about habit building, about Bible translations, about her Bible reading. She shared with me that her thoughts on the Christian Standard Bible, because she said she read it a few years ago, and, and, and one thing she pointed out, and I believe I had heard this maybe in my research, was that in the Old Testament, whenever the word wine is used, which there's about 13 or 14 Hebrew words for wine, but she said at least, maybe not always, uh, maybe always, it's translated beer. <laughs> and and that's trying, again, make it relatable and um, easier to understand. Well, that really, I mean, they may have had beer then. They, had, they grew barley, so I'm sure they did have beer. But when that word is used, it's, it's actually kind of detracting from not only the language, but also the idea that they were drinking beer in a lot of those occasions when they were drinking produce of the grape. Whether that was fermented or not, it was produce of the grape whenever that word is used for wine. So that's kind of, you know, I don't like that. She didn't like that. I agree. If that's the only thing wrong with the translation, then I can, you know, get past that. Uh, and that's not going to weigh me down, but that's just, you know, the, my first take on it. Overall, I feel like it does a pretty good job of translating accurately, but we'll, we'll see. I can't really recommend it with five stars until I do it myself, until I read it myself. Now, I did just, you know, we're going all over the place. What I've done to this point is I've given you the four criteria that go into translation. I gave you a little bit of history before that. We've talked a little bit about the difference between dynamic equivalence, formal equivalence, optimal equivalence. And we've talked about the Christian Standard Bible a little bit. I want to tell you what I've learned about the New International Version for just a minute, because a lot of you probably read from the NIV, and a lot of you maybe, you know, just like to refer to it and all. And I'll tell you something that I've learned. My brother tipped me off on this. I did not know about this. I had bought a new NIV at the beginning of 2021, started reading it, and I'm just about to finish the NIV that I purchased then. What I what I did not realize is there's been a huge controversy about the NIV uh, over the last several years, at least since 2011, when the last edition was published. And I will, if I can here, read you the statistics of the differences in the NIV translations as they have come out, because the original was produced in 1984, and since then several new editions have come out. The today's NIV translation came out, I don't have the exact year, but after 1984 and before 2011, and it's called the TNIV. It still exists. It's not in production anymore. It didn't stay in production very long because there was so much backlash about it. It changed a lot of the 1984 edition. There's an article about this, by the way, that I'm reading from, and you can just search on the Facebook page of 5-Minute Bible Study. Just search NIV, and there's an article titled A Fair Analysis of the New NIV. If you want to read the whole article, I highly recommend it. It says, The NIV 2011 should be considered the offspring of the TNIV and the grandson of the NIV 1984. The genetic stock shared by all three translations is 18,000-plus verses, which is 60.7% verse similarity. Okay, what that means is essentially there is a lot of difference between what was the original NIV and what you're picking off the bookshelf today at the Bible bookstore. In fact, the last sentence here says, broken down, this means the NIV 2011 is 38.8% different than the NIV 1984 and 8% different than the TNIV. The thing that really disturbs me are two, well, two th separate things about this 2011 version, the one that you're going to buy from new nowadays, is that they basically the TNIV was rejected by so many people they just stopped producing it, right? Well, in 2011 they just decided that they would they really wanted to change their agenda on translation, and so they they just took the TNIV text and made it their main text and didn't tell anybody about it basically, <laughs> and just thought they would slip it in there. And the translation committee is a feminist, agenda-based committee. And this becomes very obvious in the translations of two texts in 1 Timothy and several texts throughout. Um, as I was reading through my NIV 2011 this year, I have a little black notebook, exactly you know what you're thinking about, that you pull out, and I would write on the right column where I 
saw a bad translation, and I saw a lot of feminist, I saw some, I'll put it like this, some feminist translations of text where, you know, back to Riken's point, this is a dynamic equivalent translation where they're trying to, instead of translating the words, they're trying to translate the thoughts, and they're trying to make interpretive decisions for you. Rather than just giving you the Bible, they're trying to help you, quote-unquote, by making the interpretation of the Bible for you. So instead of just reading the Bible, you you already now know what to think about the Bible because it does both for you. You don't want that. You don't want that because the people on this translation committee, they have an agenda. They have biases. And, and good translators realize they have kind of, they have biases that they may not even realize, and they sure enough know that their audience is not going to appreciate their bias, and so they want to produce a neutral text, which is the Bible. The Bible is a neutral text. It's God's text. And so that's kind of the problem with this approach, you know, just in general. But the agenda that they have as an, as a feminist agenda, I'll take you through a couple of texts here and show you the exact wording and why this is a problem. Now, if there's any people that are egalitarians, and if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's just basically saying, taking a feminist approach to the Bible, then you'll appreciate these, probably. But these are not accurate translations of the text. I'll just tell you this. I'm reading from the New King James Version in one text, and then I'll read to you the NIV 2011, a less literal text, a dynamic equivalent text, in the uh, second reading here. So, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, the Bible says, in the New King James I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Okay, the phrase to have authority over the man is, you know, that's that's the text. That's what it says. I as an interpreter read that and understand that he's saying a woman is not to have a man's authority. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 from the NIV 2011 translates the text and then interprets the text in its translation so that this is what you get. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now you say, what's the difference? Because by using changing the word have to assume, the translation committee is showing what they believe about women's roles, and they don't believe that it's wrong for a woman to have the authority of a man. They just simply want to push the agenda that it's wrong for a woman to usurp, to assume the authority of a man in, a, I guess, a malicious way. As long as she doesn't usurp authority, then it's okay. That's what they're trying to teach you by interpreting the Bible for you. 1 Timothy 3 verse 11 is a more obvious mishap here. Pay attention to this. New King James says, 1 Timothy 3 verse 11 about about, uh, deacons and the New King James says their wives. Likewise, their wives must be reverent and so on. The NIV 2011 says, in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect. The reason they translate the women instead of wives is not because contextually, uh, historically, and uh, looking at the whole harmony of Scripture that this does not rather teach that we're talking about deacons' wives here, but they would like to push the agenda that there is such a thing as female deaconesses, which is a very common interpretation in Bible commentaries among denominations. In fact, it's the primary view today, now, but I don't believe that. I believe this is, I believe the New King James and all other essentially little translations are correct when they translate this, their wives. It fits the context, and it fits what we know about the role of deacons and servants in the church and serving in the church and women's roles in the church. I would prefer the translator just give me what the Greek says. Likewise, their wives. Now, the word there could be translated women, but no other translation in recent history has translated this women because they understand that in the context, what is, is meant is wives. And so this is a New Age translation for the sake of pushing an agenda. Another one, one more to make it very obvious, is in Romans 16 and verse 1. Romans 16 verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. The New King James says, the NIV 2011 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. Again, this word is the word diakonia, which can be translated servant, and the only other place it's translated deacon, as in the office of the church, is in 1 Timothy 3. I believe that's the only place in the whole of Scripture. 
actually, it's it's well, there's there's that in Philippians one verse one. Those are the only two places I believe in all of Scripture. The word occurs a lot more than those two places, but everywhere else it's translated just simply servant because it can mean either one. And contextually, again, what do we know about women's roles in the New Testament? What do we know about the rest of Scripture, about service in general, the office of a deacon, how the Word has been translated and should be translated by context and so forth? Let the Word of God just speak. They're trying to interpret for you that they believe Phoebe was a deaconess rather than just simply somebody serving in the church. I have a lot more passages that I wrote down where I saw translation issues, and I just, you know, we've talked over 30 minutes now. I'm not going to go on any longer, so we're going to wrap it up here, but I'll just give you some verses to look up, and you can compare the NIV, for example, with an essentially literal translation like the ESV, New American Standard, or whatever, and see where key phrases are changed and distorted. One passage, Romans 3.25, that we read earlier when comparing interlinear, Let's see here, Romans 7 verse 18 is a big one where they tried to promote the doctrine of sinful nature. Another one is Genesis 9 verse 27, which is a big one, where they interpret that Japheth shall live in the tents of Shem as opposed to the general pronoun he, which I believe is referring to God and not Japheth, shall dwell in the tents of Shem, the tents of Shem. That's a messianic prophecy. Um, and they, they ruin that by giving their opinion where nobody else is bold enough to interpret that Japheth. There's other passages as well, but there's a few you can look up. So what I, again, encourage you, I want to end on this, is to, when you're choosing a Bible translation, if you want to choose the Christian Standard Bible, fine. If you want to choose the New International Version, fine. If With that said, I do want to disclaim about the NIV. Do not get the 2011 NIV, which has the feminist agenda like I was talking about. It substitutes gender-neutral pronouns, which is something I did not bring up, actually. And it just misinterprets several key passages, like Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. Get a 1984 NIV. You're not going to find this new in a bookstore. Go to a used bookstore. Look for one used online. A 1984-based NIV, the original, is a much better translation, and I, would rec- I wouldn't deter somebody from reading that. Also, don't get the TNIV you want to choose the New Living Translation. I really just have such distaste for the the freeness of that text that I really do not recommend that one. I really do not like the New Living Translation, but if you want to read that and you're set on it, um, I guess you could read it, but please study out of multiple translations, and when you do study, and if, especially if you're reading from the New Living, then make sure that you have at least three translations to study from, and two of those translations are a essentially literal translation. Your choices are New American Standard, English Standard, KJV, New K, uh, NKJV, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version. All those are essentially literal and are good companions to compare with these other translations uh, that you might choose to read from. So I hope that helps. I'm not giving you one. Now, I read from the New King James Version. I read from the New King James since I was a child, since I was five years old in our family Bible reading. And so I recommend that one because I'm familiar with it. I like the flow. I'm most familiar with it. But uh, if I was going to read another one, I would probably read the New American Standard is probably what I would read. It's a little more, to me, uh, it's considered the most the most literal of the essentially literal translations. And I think it reads you know, fine and easy to read, but scholars say and other people say, uh, that it's kind of wooden, and it doesn't read as well and fluid. So I guess I'm just too used to reading the New King James Version that it doesn't seem to be much of a difference. But maybe you know, somebody that hasn't read their Bible before, that doesn't know much about the Scriptures in general, it's going to be a little more wooden to them. They're not going to have as easy of a time. So come back to me a year from now. Ask me what I think about the Christian Standard Bible, and do I recommend it finally without any reservation? I do encourage you at this point, you know, we're toward the end of 2021, you need to start getting thinking about your Bible reading goals for next year. Find a translation that you can read from and you will read from, and then get to work. I hope that this encourages you, and uh, maybe in the future, based off of y'all's feedback, we'll do another follow-up more about choosing a Bible and some of the finer points about why we recommend essentially literate translations overall, really, for your reading and study as opposed to dynamic equivalent translations.
I'm running out of foot and mouth syndromes, guys. I got to have some more stories. Submit your foot and mouth syndrome of your own, or maybe you heard a preacher say something in the pulpit that uh, just didn't hit really like he hoped it would. Let me know. This week, I'm going to tell you a story about uh, when I basically called everybody over the age of 50 old. (laughs) Now, I didn't say it quite like that. Uh, Pretty close. I don't know exactly what I was preaching on. It had something to do with the Old Testament. And I think, as usual, I was given a presentation, a sermon on something that was kind of off the cuff because I didn't realize I was supposed to be speaking or something. And I got to the genealogies in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, one of the repeated phrases, which I think forms a structure of the book, is, uh, this is the generation of. The New King James translates it, this is the book of the genealogy of Abraham. And anyway, so we were talking about that, and I was trying to come up with an analogy off the cuff that people could relate to, you know, these books of genealogies that are otherwise boring and seem to be meaningless. I said, you know, a lot of people, I know some of you guys over the age of 50, (laughs) I said, some of you guys over the age of 50 treat Ancestry.org like it's Facebook. I know, my Meemaw does it. And, you know, I thought it was pretty funny. I I saw, I think it was William Davis, if you're listening, I think I saw William Davis, and I think he was the only person that had cracked a smile and was like, okay, now, that's funny, because you know it's true. And I had to follow it up, because nobody was smiling. And I looked at the older people over the age of 50, and I said, I'm thinking, I know they know it's true, and they're going to start smiling here soon, and that nobody did. It just didn't quite hit like I thought. I did not apologize. Still did not apologize. This is a true fact. Uh, I'm the funniest person I know sometimes, and other people don't think that, so they'll just have to live with their miserable selves. Welp, that's all I got for you today on this episode of 5-Minute Bible Study. Come back next time for more, as we'll talk about in our last episode of the year, Bible reading tips. Tips you need to know for your Bible reading and Bible study. Come back next time on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast Network.